Okay, so what are we doing? Proverbs is over. It just went quick, didn't it? Uh, it's one of those books that I, we probably can revisit. It's one of those books that it's easy to jump back in and just do a proverb. Maybe during the summer that might happen. Uh, but we got a taste of the book. Uh, we got a feel for the book. And now we're moving on because, remember, we are a very democratic church, and you all voted for Proverbs, so that happened. You also voted for Isaiah, so that starts today. And you also voted for the life of David, and I'll start uh, in another six weeks or so. So we've had a full spring. It's kind of fun. I like it. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I like this kind of pace. I like this kind of movement. Um, when you're in a book for over a year, that's just like, ah, uh, to me. And I just was recently in a place where the preacher said, he's been on the Sermon of the Mount for what? How many weeks was it? 50. 50 weeks! I, gotta, I, I can't say anymore. All right, here we go. What are we doing today? We're starting Isaiah. So here's the question for Isaiah. Are you ready? What is the hardest thing in the world to do? What is the hardest thing? Let's be real. What's the hardest thing in the world to do? Uh, how about lifting 27 pounds with your tongue and then holding it for five seconds? Everyone on the Guinness Book of World's Records staff panel says that's the number one record that they say no one will ever beat. It happened in 2004 by a guy named Tonis Blackhorn. It took him six years of training. How did he do it? He pierced his tongue with a hook, and then he held four, four, 6.7 pounds of weight off that hook, and he held it. He lifted it up and held it for five seconds with his tongue. Amazing, right? Is that the hardest thing in the world to do? What's the hardest thing in the world to do? How about being the best in the world at something? Like, you know, a professional sport, tennis, MMA, right? How about soccer, football, cornhole? I mean, Mike Tyson said something incredible. He said, I saw this interview of him. I think it was like a 30 for 30 or something. He said, do you all know who he is? Used to be the heavyweight champion of the world, probably, you know, Muhammad Ali, Tyson. Nobody wanted to fight Tyson. But this is what he said. He said it without flinching. He said it like it was as normal as the air you breathe. He says, when you're the baddest dude on the planet, how can it not go to your head? Amazing. All right, what if you were the, being the best in the world at, say, a musician or an artist or an author or a world leader. Well, let's take it up another notch. Let's say you're not just the best in these things in the year 2023. What if you're the GOAT? What if you're Tom Brady, the greatest of all time? Or Michael Jordan? Or let's say in music, for you classical people, Beethoven. Then for the rest of us, it's Johnny Cash. Or how about if it's a, an artist, Leonardo da Vinci? An author, Shakespeare, a world leader, Alexander the Great. What is the hardest thing in the world to do, to be the goat or to be the, the best in the world for the year 2022 or 2023? What's the hardest thing in the world to do? How about being a mom? How about being a middle schooler? How about losing a loved one? How about being abused?
How about living in a worn, torn country? How about living in a country that has a beastly dictator and state? What's the hardest thing in the world to do? How about suffering without relief mentally, emotionally, physically? What is the hardest thing in the world to do? The book of Isaiah says, trusting God. So do you struggle to trust God? Then the book of Isaiah is for you. Are you confused about how to trust God? You don't know how to trust God practically, functionally, everyday life with your anxieties or your emotional things that are going on. Or with money and debt and expenses. How to pay for a college or just how to pay the monthly bills. What does it look like? Are you confused about what it is to trust God in those things? The book of Isaiah is for you. Well, what about, do you ever wonder, like, do you wonder, why is it so easy for Susie Saint to trust God? You know, why, what's the secret sauce of that skinny jeans pastor? Have you ever wondered that kind of stuff? Have you ever wondered, like, am I missing something? Am I missing some kind of teaching, like, I need some kind of teaching. There's some sort of doctrine or theology I'm missing in my life, or maybe it's a church tradition I'm missing in my life, or some sort of ministry practice. Have you ever wondered this? Maybe it's a ministry practice I'm not doing or I'm not applying to my life. Maybe it's not I'm missing a biblical principle that I'm not applying to my life. Maybe it's some spiritual experience that I haven't felt something or been sincere enough or had enough passion in my life. Maybe it's a spiritual discipline I'm not doing. That's missing in my life. Or maybe it's some work of the Holy Spirit. Somehow I haven't accessed the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't know how to access the Holy Spirit, but that must be the answer. Or maybe it's just something I must do, like I need to surrender something or yield something or, or come to an understanding about something. Have you ever wondered that? And the book of Isaiah is for you. The book of Isaiah is for the hardest thing in the world to do. Trust God. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I want you to see we're going to go to 1-1 one, one, and to 2-1, and there's a reason why we're going to go to 1-1 one, one, and to 2-1 and then to 6, all right? So just really, really quickly, Isaiah 1-5 through five is not the beginning of Isaiah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? The beginning of Isaiah happens in chapter 6. So you've got to ask yourself, even why we do this, why would God use Isaiah the prophet to have five chapters that are not the origin story? The origin story of Isaiah happens in 6. So why are there five chapters previous? Why is there a backstory to the origin story? Inquiring minds want to know. Verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos. 
So the vision of Isaiah is going to happen now for the next 66 chapters. It's the book of Isaiah, okay? The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of what? Judah. So a little brief history here. Israel is now in two kingdoms. Northern kingdom, ten tribes. Southern kingdom, two tribes. David or Judah and Benjamin, okay? So the kingdom is split. That's where we're at. And now you need to also know that there is a boogeyman out there. And there are whispers all over the land of a boogeyman. He's coming. And hell is coming with him. It's a country called Assyria. Even modern historians today say Assyria is one of the top five most wicked, evil civilizations in world history. The boogeyman is coming. That's what's happening throughout all of Israel. So you remember, those of you that were at the uh, Angels and Demons Theology After Dark, how many of y'all were there? All right, do you remember um, the Assyrians? I'm speaking to you. The Assyrians attained some sort of advanced military technology that they said they got from their gods. So if you were at that thing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What did they get? No one had ever seen this technology before. It was called iron. Everybody was using bronze. So iron is like a knife. Bronze is like butter. So they just mowed down every country, right? That's what's happening. Also, since we just got through Jonah, think Jonah. Jonah is right before Isaiah. So remember, Jonah was sent to the capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh. So all that world, those of you that have been a part of that, it's all coming to play now. Assyria is on the move. There are whispers everywhere of the boogeyman. All right, so now let's go to 2-1. All right, so periodically throughout Isaiah, there's going to be these little introductions just to remind you that this is a vision of Isaiah. So I just want to give you a sample. Here we go. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. All right, everybody with me? Now let's go to the origin story. Now, this is how it all happened. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a high throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard a voice. This is the first time the Lord speaks in the whole thing. Not one word has come from God yet. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Man, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to the people, now you have the book of Isaiah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
<clears throat> All right, let's pray. I got whatever is going on out there. Can't make up his mind. Are we going to have spring or not? I don't know. Lord, would you shine on the page? Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lord, we're asking that you would give and grant the realities of this passage on the spot. Would you fill us through your spirit? Would you give it? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. So just ask Israel if it is. Right before Israel is going into the promised land, God says, trust me and you'll stay in this land. Trust me and you'll stay in this land. And, and, and all of Israel is is marshaled in this huge valley on this great plain, and all the people of Israel are about ready to go into the land. And, and they said, yes, God, we will trust you. And this covenant was formed, this binding relationship where God says, trust me, and you stay in the land. And the people said, we will trust you and stay in the land. And they sealed it with blood. Well, they didn't, did they? <clears throat> How do we know? Well, the long story is, okay, go read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, uh, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, that's the long way to find out. The short way is this, the land split in two. The people split in two. So the kingdom of God is a king with a people in a place. And now the place, literally the land, the kingdom splits in two. It decreates. The people literally split in two. They decreate into ten tribes and two tribes. In other words, what's happening in Israel is decreation. We're, we're going back to the flood. The flood's taking back the creation. The hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. Just ask Isaiah. So remember we said the first five chapters happened before the origin story? So why is that? I mean, did Captain America even though most of his exploits and adventures are in modern-day America, in a modern-day world, did, did Marvel start with the origin story in modern-day America? No, everybody knows that. Started in 1940s America, Captain America did, in a world at war, right? And then you have to read the rest of the story, but that's his origin story. Isaiah's origin story is Isaiah 6. So why chapters 1 through 5? The question is because chapters 1 through 5 tell us who Isaiah really is. Chapters 1 through 5 tell you, tell me, this is the great prophet. This great prophet. Who is this great prophet? Did you know he's like, he's called the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. Did you know his writings are called the Romans of the Old Testament? So this guy is considered to be the greatest prophet who ever lived. He is so revered by all the ancient writings. 
Not just in the Hebrew world, but in the outer worlds. He's an amazing man. But what's his origin story? What's his backstory? And that happens in chapters 1 through 5 when God speaks to every single Israelite, including Isaiah. In chapters 1 through 5, God says, Isaiah, Israel, you're infected with an incurable disease. God does this amazing thing. He puts forth this, this image of a human body that's racked and wrecked with sickness. He says, quote, your whole head is sick. And it's gotten into your heart that your heart is collapsing. You're having many, many heart attacks consistently. He's saying to them using this image and this metaphor that all your thinking is wrecked, it's diseased. All your feeling in life is diseased. All the way you perceive the world is sick. All the way that you feel and desire and experience life is sick. It's incurable. He goes on to say, listen, every part of you, quote, from the sole of your foot to your head is nothing but bruises and sores and raw open wounds. This is the backstory. Chapters 1 through 5 is why the book of Isaiah begins this way. You're infected with an incurable disease. This is why Isaiah, when it gets to Isaiah 6, this is why he says, woe is me. Literally, I'm condemned. And then he goes on to say, for I am, explanation number one, I am lost. Literally, it's saying, I am unraveling, I am decreating, I am disintegrating as a human being. I'm moving towards nothingness. Do you know that that is the one state that all of us fear, is being a nothing? Did you know that, like, even Rocky said that to his wife. Why are you fighting Rocky? Because I don't want to be a, um, a nothing. Do you know that maybe possibly what drives you as a parent and what drives you as a friend and what drives you in your job and what drives you in your calling is you don't want to be a nothing. Maybe what makes <clears throat> men and women great and they become these goats, greatest of all time, is that they don't want to be a nothing, that that's the deepest fear, it's the most insidious fear, it's the most psychological breakdown in the human soul, is this fear, this I am nothing. Well, that's what Isaiah is doing right now. He feels it all the way into his bones, And then he says, reason number two is, I'm this man of unclean lips, and there's so much ink spilt on that. Nobody really knows what it means. <clears throat> there's two possible explanations. One is your lips are the exit door of your heart. So when your heart comes out, it comes out through your lips. And so your lips, your words, your communication reveal your heart. That's explanation number one. So he has unclean lips because he has an unclean heart. That's what most folks say. That's the standard conservative evangelical interpretation. Or it, it might be more simpler than that. It might be because since we've just gone through COVID, we know what happens with our lips. Why do you think the doctor is always 
ah, sticking that thing down your throat to get a sample of your sickness. Where does it go? Through your lips, into your throat. How did COVID spread? Through the lips. Maybe sickness sits in the lips. Maybe sickness spreads through the lips. Whatever's going on here, whatever it is, Isaiah's saying, I'm infected. And it's incurable. I can't cure it. We've tried to cure it. We've had many years with many kings, with many great leaders, with many priests. We even have a huge temple. We had miraculous things happen in this promised land. But it hasn't cured us. So, of course, the hardest thing in the world to do for your child is trust God. They're infected. So, of course, the hardest thing in the world to do for your spouse to trust God is to trust God because they're infected. Of course, this is the hardest thing in the world for you to do. You're infected. It's the hardest thing in the world for the president to do. It's the hardest thing in the world for politicians to do. It's the hardest thing in the world for world leaders to do. It's the hardest thing in the world for self-appointed cultural leaders to do. It's the hardest thing in the world for anybody to do. Of course it is. We're infected. So trusting God is the hardest thing in the world to do. It is for Israel. It is for Isaiah. It is for you. It is for me. It's for everybody. The secret sauce pastor, for all of us, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. So how do we trust God? That's the question. How do we trust God? How will we ever trust God? How do, we, how do people with unclean lips trust God? Look at Isaiah, verse 1. Here we go. We're going to get started. You ready? Let's put Isaiah 6.1 up there if we can. It's coming. I'm going to go ahead and read it. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You see the answer? So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah, how did you trust God? Isaiah, how did it happen for you? I saw the Lord. Isaiah, how did you functionally grow in trusting God? I saw the Lord. Isaiah, what's the secret sauce to Christianity? I saw the Lord. Isaiah, how did you overcome your struggle to trust God? How did you overcome all the confusion and the options out there to help you trust God? I saw the Lord. The hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. And the book of Isaiah says the way you do is by seeing the Lord. And some of you are thinking, yeah, Jeff, I get that, but that's the problem. I want to trust God. I want to see God, but I don't. Why doesn't he show up for me? So I don't want you to miss 2-1. Let's put 2-1 back because I wanted to give you an example of some of the ways it's introduced, the first five chapters. So the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Do you see what just happened there? Do you see it? Do you see the connection between word 
and saw. What Isaiah is saying is, I saw the word. I saw God through the word. He's not saying he read the word. He's not saying he heard the word. He's not saying he memorized the word. For the book of Isaiah, the way to see God is to look at the word. So in Isaiah, the window of the word opens up to see God. So in Isaiah, the word is a window to see God. This is absolutely amazing. So how do you see God? Isaiah says, the Bible says, the book of Isaiah says, look through the window of the word. So if you want to see God, look through the window of the word. So in other words, all of a sudden, in the word, window opens up into unseen wonders that now you see. This is amazing. This is absolutely the answer to everything. The greatest application of all applications is look through the word to see God. This is the ultimate application. This is the engine for all your faith. I don't know how to trust him. Look through the word to see God and you'll trust him. So the book of Isaiah is saying to you right now, look through the word and you'll see God. You'll trust him. So you can get off the treadmill, y'all. You can get off the treadmill of all the other options that are out there. You don't have to worry about a teaching that you're missing. You don't have to worry about a secret sauce that you're missing. You don't have to worry about somehow tapping into some mysterious encounter with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to worry about a church tradition that you're missing. The call from Isaiah is, look at the window of the word and you'll see God. So Isaiah, what did you see? Isaiah says, I saw a king. I saw the king. 6-1, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is a big deal. So we're getting into a part of this text, y'all, where I don't know what's going to happen, honestly. Because the goal of this text, the goal of Isaiah is to actually have you see God. This is not about something that you write down and apply next week. This is about actually in the moment, in this time, Isaiah's written. It's now the window by which you see God. And so we are going to look through that window right now. And we're going to ask Isaiah, Isaiah, listen, the hardest thing, we get it. The hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. And you say the answer is to see God. What did you see? And he says, I see a king, the king. So in the year that King Uzziah died, this is a big deal because no one trusts God in Israel. So you got to understand what happened in Israel is that no one was trusting God. First, it was the whole people were supposed to trust God and everybody put their hope in that they could all do it and they couldn't do it. So then they went to the priests. Okay, we'll, we'll appoint those guys to trust God. And maybe if they trust God, they can do it enough so that we stay in the land and they don't trust God. And so all hope had moved to the kings. Will the king trust God? So when David came, it looked pretty good, right? And then Solomon. Okay, a little less, but it, it still looked pretty good. And then everything broke apart, and you've got two kings and two peoples and two lands, and everything's fallen to pieces. But what happened with this king Uzziah is that he's the greatest king that ever happened since David. He was a good king, and now he died. 
Oh no, all hope is lost. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Literally, I saw the king. That's what L-O-R-D means. The king who cannot die, they sees. He's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in the ancient world, a king's robe was a measure of his greatness. It was a measure of his stature. And now look at this robe. The train of his robe filled the temple. So the king's robe fills the temple. But this is amazing. It's not just the robe that filled the temple. Did you see what does fill the temple? The train of his robe fills the temple. So the bottom half of the robe fills the temple. It's not just the king's robe. It's only the bottom hem that fills this cosmic temple. This is an incomparable king. Ty and I have been reading Matthew. We've been doing it every morning while we're sitting. He wants to get to practice early, so we sit in a parking lot for 30 minutes before practice. And we read Matthew. So at about five minutes right before he goes in, I pull it up. And so we got to the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, so it was quite interesting. So we get this part where it says, don't swear an oath by your might. In other words, I swear I'll do it. I swear I'll do it. I will do it. Jesus is saying, listen, don't, don't take an oath and swear it by your own might. It's just not good. Why? I mean, you know, those, all those movies where the dude's falling off Niagara Falls and he turns to his loved one, his, you know, his loved lover, and he says, I'll be back, I swear. No, he's not coming back. That's what Jesus is saying. That kind of stuff, it's foolish. It's like, I swear, I can be anything I want to be. Jesus is saying, don't, don't say that. You're just going to hurt yourself. I swear, I'll be back. You're just going to hurt your relationship. Don't do that. But he gives two reasons. One, he says, listen, you don't even have the power to change your hair from black to blonde, from white to black, from red to yellow. You don't have that kind of power. And then he illustrates it, and he says this. This is what he says. He says, listen, only God can. God's throne is in heaven, and his feet sit on the earth. I think he was like Isaiah 6 in that crowd. This is an incomparable king. The bottom half of his robe fills the temple. Isaiah 6, 2, and above him stood the seraphim. This just means that the creature stood, uh, the king sat. That's all that means. It's not that they're above him. It's just they're standing, he's sitting, he's the king. Now, these creatures are interesting because most scholars believe that the combination of two images, one is a dragon, the other is fire. So you wonder why dragons are so epic in all mythologies and in our movies and our stories and our books. Well, the seraphim, these seraphim were dragons with fire, literally the fiery ones. And so each had six wings, two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, two they flew, and then they called to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this is where it just goes off the rails. Nowhere in the Bible is this ever done. Nowhere in the Bible has the repetition of three been applied to anything, much less God. So you have a triple repetition, holy, holy, holy. You have this word that's called holiness that means incomparable, incomparable, incomparable is the Lord. Uh, 
perfectly, infinitely incomparable. Theologians call it otherness. Theologians call it separateness. Theologians call God is different. He's other. He's separate. He's a whole other category. You can't even get into the category. He's above and beyond. There is no way to compare. There is no way to make some sort of connection. It is different. It's other. It's holy. So when you get into Revelation, you have the sea of glass that just separates God from creation. It's a sea of glass that nobody can cross. It's a sea of glass that there's just a sea of glass, and then there's a throne. There's just this huge gap, this huge crossing that no one can cross. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so whatever he is, he's holy. So holy means incomparable, other, different. So if he's loving, he's wholly loving. He's incomparably loving. So if he's righteous, he's incomparably righteous. And so if he's morally pure, he's incomparably morally pure. If he has power, it's incomparable power. If he's wise, it's incomparable wisdom. Knowledge, it's incomparable knowledge. He's incomparable. He's so incomparable that just the hem of his robe fills everything that everyone knows about in creation. And then it goes somewhere else. God's holiness is why John Stott in his classic, The Cross of Christ, says God cannot deny himself. He's holy. He cannot be but himself. He's holy. So he must be himself because he's holy. He's, he's incomparable. He's just who he is. So he's always going to be who he is. So he can't be who he's not. And that's why he must be true to himself. And that's why he must satisfy himself. And that's why we use the language he must glorify himself because he is the only one who's holy. He is the incomparable one. If he's not for himself, what else is there? And so Stott says it this way, God's holiness then exposes sin. And his wrath then opposes sin. And sin cannot approach God and God cannot tolerate sin. And so holiness is what's happening to Isaiah. It's not just his moral purity. It is his moral purity, but it's more than that. It's who he is. So if God is light, obviously darkness It can't exist. That's what's happening here. And so the foundation shook. I mean, everything. Can you imagine being Isaiah? He's in this temple, and he's only at the doorway. Did you catch that? The threshold's the doorway. So he's at the doorway. All he sees is the hem because he's on his face. And then soon as they start speaking, don't miss this, y'all. He's experiencing the holiness of God, yes. Do you see that? Everybody knows that. But get more specific. He doesn't experience God's holiness until the angels speak. The whole place starts shaking. In other words, do you want to experience God? Do you want to see God? The text is saying over and over again, the the word is the window to see him. So if you want to experience his holiness, if you want to see who he really is, you do so with the word. There is no experience. There is no encounter. There is no reality of knowing God and trusting God apart from the scripture, apart from the word. There is nothing. So secret sauces don't work. There's just 
the words hold, the, the, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. And so God's holiness is mediated. God's holiness is experienced in words. And the whole place starts shaking as soon as they start speaking. And then all of a sudden, smoke starts coming into the temple and just starts clouding and filling everything. And then, because of these words, because of experiencing God, Isaiah says, I'm, I'm condemned, I'm undone. I'm becoming nothing. None of this happens without words. None of it. Isaiah, what do you see? I see a king. The king. The savior king. And y'all, this is where it takes a twist. And I, it takes a twist because most people focus on the holiness of of God in terms of his moral purity in this passage. But that's not the emphasis of this passage. The first time God speaks, he's sending. He has a mission. All of it's necessary for what Isaiah is experiencing, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is not that he's the king. The point of the text is that he's the Savior King. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So at the altar, there's a substitute that gets slaughtered in the place of Israel and in the place of Isaiah. In other words, God's holiness by fire consumes a substitute so that it doesn't consume Israel. And so it doesn't consume Isaiah. And the burning coal is telling you that it's done. The consuming of the substitute has happened. It's done. It's finished. So the, the seraphim, the flying dragon, the fiery one goes and he grabs a piece of coal from an accomplished substitutionary sacrifice. Something consumed in the place of Israel and Isaiah. And he goes directly, he goes directly to the unclean place and touches it and says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your son is atoned for. Holiness has been satisfied. It's over for you, dude. You're okay. And this is when Isaiah actually starts trusting God. I want you to end. We're going to end this way. I want you to look at the words holy, holy, holy. Do you see that? That's verse, what is that? Six? Is it six or four? Four? Three. Well, I was eventually going to get it. <laughs> holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Okay, so unfortunately, the translation up here is incorrect. If you go to holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So at the beginning, it says, I saw the Lord, L-O-R-D. It's that L-O-R-D, which means I saw the king. But here, 
When the angel speaks, the first time they speak, and you're going to encounter God, you're going to experience God, the first time he experiences God, right? He sees him, but now he's starting to experience him. And as he experiences him and he sees him, he starts trusting him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, holy, holy, holy is the good news God. Triple reputation, incomparable, incomparable, incomparable is this God of grace. Is the Savior King. That is the point of Isaiah. So you got whispers everywhere, right? They're coming. All of Israel knows they're coming. The boogeyman's coming. And hell is coming with them. But the reality is Isaiah has chapter 5 first, 1 through 5 first, because he's saying, no, y'all, the boogeyman is already here. We're all infected. It's incurable. You've got bruises and open wounds from head to toe over every part of your body and every part of your relationships and everything you do in life. And the angels roar, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That of hosts means he's the God of good news, Lord, but he's the God of good news that comes to fight for you. And so what happens is that Jesus actually becomes that sacrifice. And so Jesus, the most holy one, actually becomes unholy and is consumed by God's holiness in your place so that you're free. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. There's now no more condemnation. You have, right now, Christian, no fear of being nothing. That will never happen to you. And right now, Jesus actually gives you his holiness so can you imagine the picture now Isaiah has that happen he's flat on the ground he can't believe what's happening to him and now God speaks for the first time and says hey I'm the savior king ah the Assyrians (laughs) Assyrians you've got a bigger enemy called sin and death and I'm coming to crush him. And my son will be here. And he will obliterate all the enemies in the land. And when you're now on that battlefield with the Savior who has just obliterated everything and everyone's on their face and everyone's on their knees and he says, who will I send now to tell the world this good news of the Savior King? And Isaiah says, oh, let me, let me run, let me run, let me run, let me run. Lord, amazing passage. We ask that you would um, continue to cause your word to be a window for us for the rest of the day that we continue to see 
and experience and feel what's happening in this text. And what's happening in this text is holy, holy, holy is the Savior King. Incomparable. And you've come for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.